Hello and welcome to the March 2012 edition of the Lesbian Gay Law Notes podcast. I'm Brad Snyder, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. And with me is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the chief editor and writer of Lesbian Gay Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. And with that, let's go to the March issue of Law Notes. So the lead story in the March issue is a, um, is a small little case out of California. Maybe a few people have heard of it. It concerns um, Prop 8. Have you heard of Prop 8? Prop 8. Uh, you'll have so, to remind me. It's Brad. about same-sex marriage, oh, right. get, okay. um, marriage so, equality. So, so here's the story. Wait, wait. But I'm feeling yeah. pressure. You said you have somewhere to go tonight? Because usually no, this is like we, leisurely. We're going feeling... to take a long time on this podcast, Brad, <laughs> and we're using it up right now. All right. Go, uh, so, go to it. So Perry versus Brown. Right. Perry versus Brown. Now, now uh, Perry is uh, Kristen M. Perry and her partner, Sandra B. Steyer, and uh, the other plaintiffs are Paul T. Katami and Jeffrey J. Zarillo. These are same-sex couples. They wanted to get married. But the people of California passed an amendment to their constitution called Proposition they 8. They said no. Which basically says no same-sex marriage in California. So they went to the – That marriage will only be between a man and a woman. Only between – only one man and one woman. One in, man in the whole state woman. of California can get married, <laughs> which means uh, there's a lot of unmarried people running around in California. So uh, they went uh, – one couple went to the county clerk in Alameda County and the other one went to Los Angeles County and they applied for licenses. They were turned down. And this was a setup, folks. This was to do a cat test case. A test case. To, to get rid of Prop 8. Uh, the American Foundation for Equal Rights, which was formed specifically for the purpose of bringing this case over the objections of the LGBT litigation groups who were trying to stay away from federal court on the marriage issue. They wanted to stay in state courts. Uh, so uh, a bunch of folks got together basically in West Hollywood and they formed this organization and they recruited – uh, two of the most that's prominent a, appellate a, advocates a, in the country. It's a loaded term. West really Hollywood is a really – well, they did recruit. I mean they, they contacted Ted Olson and Ted Olson said, uh, no one's going to believe it if I'm the only attorney. We've got to get someone who's notable as a liberal Democrat. So they got David Boyce and the two of them together agreed to take up this case, which they won in August of 2010 before then Chief Judge Vaughn Walker of the U.S. District Court in San Francisco and the – People who had proposed Proposition 8 were the people who really defended it in court because the governor at that time, Arnold Schwarzenegger, was not inclined to defend it and the attorney general, Jerry Brown, was not inclined to defend it and neither were those county clerks in Alameda and L.A. County and neither was the head of the health department who was in charge of administering marriage licenses. These were all named as defendants. Uh, and so the Proposition 8 proponents were allowed to intervene as defendants and they tried to appeal. And one of the issues was whether they could appeal when none of the other defendants wanted to appeal and they were the only people who weren't government officials. And uh, in its decision issued last month in February, the Ninth Circuit said, yes, they can appeal on the merits. But guess what? It's fruitless for them to appeal because they lose. <laughs> I mean this was this is the good news. Uh, but they didn't lose on the same theory that had been endorsed by Judge Walker. Well, and, and on that point, which yeah. I know you're getting to, I just want to be clear. You say in your, your this month's issue that the, the court winds up ruling on the most narrow ground they possibly could. Right. And, and why does that matter and what is that narrow ground? Well, why it matters is it reduces the likelihood of Supreme Court review of this case, although it certainly doesn't eliminate it. Uh, 
the, the point is that the way Judge Walker conducted the case, the issue before the court was whether same-sex couples have a constitutional right to get married. And he found they did. He found that the right to marry is a fundamental right and the state had no compelling reason. And we're talking federal constitution. Federal here, constitution. Not under the 14th California Amendment. State 14th Amendment. So he said that uh, the right to marry is a fundamental right and there was no compelling justification to deny it to same-sex couples. And in terms of equal protection, he said even if we use the rational basis test, even if we conclude that sexual orientation is not a suspect classification, which in the Ninth Circuit, under their precedent, it's not. And we'll be getting that back to that later in the, in the program because uh, we're going to be talking about a brave district judge who went out on a limb and said that that Ninth Circuit precedent is no longer good law. But sticking with this case for now, uh, he, he said there was not even a rational basis for excluding same-sex and, and, and on that, I wanted to read one quote. I yes. mean, occasionally I like to read these. These quotes. Yeah, because this Sometimes is, these judges, judges get off a good one. Yeah, this is I mean, Judge this Steve is, Reinhardt. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is good. Yes. I mean, this is serious stuff. So he writes, Proposition 8 serves no purpose and has no effect other than to lessen the status and human dignity of gays and lesbians in California and to officially reclassify their relationships and families as inferior to those of opposite sex couples. That's, that's good stuff. That's quite a quote. Yep. And, and uh, so what happens on appeal, though, the court says basically that Judge Walker was asking the wrong question. Uh, Judge Walker said that the case presents the question whether same-sex couples have a right to marry. But the court said that isn't really the question presented by Prop 8. The question presented by Prop 8 is whether once same-sex couples have been allowed to get married, what justification is there for taking it away? They said that's what the case is about. Proposition 8 took away the right to marry, which the California Supreme Court had declared previously in 2008. And then over the course of the the following several months, 18,000 couples got married. And then all of a sudden Prop 8 passes. It takes the right to marry away. Is that – do you – is that – I mean it's very clever. Well, it's, is that sound? And, well, the interesting thing is that when this case was filed, it was filed over the opposition of the LGBT rights legal groups. But they saw the case was going forward and they wanted to get on board. So they filed a petition with the court to intervene as co-plaintiffs, which was denied. And in their petition to intervene as co-plaintiffs, the argument they made is we want someone to present the argument – that Proposition 8 is unconstitutional because of the way it was enacted to take away legal rights. So they actually were advancing this theory, and the judge didn't let them intervene. He said there are enough plaintiffs in this case. Uh, but in the appeal to the Ninth Circuit, there were two uh, appellees, that is, parties who were defending Judge Walker's uh, decision. One was the American Foundation for Equal Rights, uh, boys and uh, Olson. The other was the city of San Francisco, which had been allowed to intervene as a co-plaintiff. So the city of San Francisco responded to the appeal by saying, oh, by the way, Ninth Circuit panel, you should also consider the argument that it violates the 14th Amendment to take away a right that has been recognized without a rational justification. So the city of San Francisco made this argument, and uh, Judge Smith, the dissenting judge, focuses on this in his dissent. Well, and on on Judge Smith for a second, I know you're going to get to him. Um, You seemed very critical of his dissent. I think you said um, it was like he was grasping at straws. Yeah, I I mean, he... he, he, It was a two-to-one decision. Yes, he he got back to this ridiculous channeling procreation argument and, and sort of said, well, you know, this argument has been made 
you know, and uh, about the procreation about about that the that the purpose of marriage is to channel procreation so that children are raised in the optimal family and setting. And he says you could there's sort of as long as there's a chance that it might be true, true. that kids are better off being therefore by, right. therefore the legislature or in this case the people voting on an amendment could have a rational basis for distinguishing between same sex and opposite couples when it came to the label of marriage. Uh, I thought it was a very, very weak dissent, but there it is. It was a dissent. So the court, instead of deciding that same-sex couples have a right to marry, the court said that they could see no rational basis for taking the right away once it had been extended. So that's the ground on which they decided the case. And that means that this case is about what happened in California with the passage of Prop 8. It isn't about the more general question of whether same-sex couples can marry unless – the Ninth Circuit decides to reconsider it. And uh, right up to the deadline, they had three weeks to do it, the uh, losers petitioned for on-bank review. On-bank review means that they're asking the entire Ninth Circuit, that's more than 25 judges, to decide whether this case should be re-argued. And if they decide it should be re-argued, and it just takes a majority of the circuit, if they decided to re-argue, there are two immediate consequences. One is the panel decision is vacated. It's no longer a Ninth Circuit precedent. The other is that Chief Judge Kaczynski and ten members of the circuit chosen by, by lot randomly will sit as an 11-judge panel to hear a re-argument of this case on the appellate level. And they could decide – to affirm Judge Walker's decision based on its original theory. They could decide, an 11-judge panel, that same-sex couples have a right to marry under the 14th Amendment. If they did that, this case is going up to the Supreme Court like a hot knife through butter. And, and when are we going to find – hot knife through butter? Yeah. I don't think I've heard that's, that before. That's, that's a, an expression of great speed. The, <laughs> that's good stuff. Yeah, you like that? I like that. Um, it's not so, kosher. But, you know. what's, um, so what, so, so what they are, could do that or they could decide to use the same theory that the panel decided. When are we likely to hear whether it – All right. I, I, I looked this up because a lot of people have been asking me this and the Ninth Circuit has rules on uh, the time limits on this. And basically the rule is that after a petition for on-bank review is filed, if no judge of the circuit requests a vote, it dies. And they have 21 days to request a vote. Now, a judge of the circuit can request that the panel that decided the case, the three-judge panel, give a recommendation as to whether it should go to on-bank review. And that could delay things. And it doesn't say in the rule how long they have to, to respond to that request for recommendation. But it's possible. Uh, this was filed on February 22nd, the petition for on-bank review. It's possible that any day now. And we're recording this on uh, March 6th? March 5th. March 5th. It'll be posted on March 6th. It'll be posted on March 6th. So by the time this is posted, we could know. <laughs> we uh, could be moved by the time this goes. I, I want to ask you one question yeah. before we, we leave off on this. We could talk about oh, this case all night. Well, there are uh, a few more things. Well, we should, I we want to ask about. you a question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to jump in. Okay. I'm going to ask you. Jump in. So um, <laughs> one of the reasons the court says that there's, you know, the justifications offered for Proposition 8 are just so, you know, they don't even pass. Uh, rational basis or that they're, they're, they're not even – they're no longer supportable is the idea that California is already recognizing, uh, you know, through judicial decisions and through domestic partnerships and others, they're already recognizing equal – you know, lots of rights right. for same-sex couples raising case, kids, right? But this case wasn't about 
whether same-sex couples will have the same rights under state law as different sex couples because the California Supreme Court, when it upheld Prop 8, made the point that all Prop 8 does is it says they can't call it a marriage. So isn't this what our, you know, our adversaries are scared yeah, of? Is that saying, once you start right. down the road – I mean this is the, the almost the dissent in, in, uh, of, of Scalia in, in Lawrence right. where he says – you know, once you get rid of this anti, you know, the, the sodomy laws, it's it, how next thing you know they'll be getting married. Next thing you know, and here yeah. we have the court almost sort of. This is the worry, right? That once you start opening the door to treating people with dignity and human respect, what were his words? That it's sort of hard to stop and start yeah. excluding, continue to exclude it's people once, from certain once, institutions. Once you recognize gay people as equal citizens with equal rights, then the question of marriage is a simple one to answer. Right. It becomes you, you're forced into making right. these ludicrous arguments. And, and so the argument could be made based on this uh, case perhaps that once you do civil unions or once you do domestic partnership and the only difference between that and marriage is the name – then what is the rational basis for not giving the name? And if the court is going to say, as they said in this case, a history and tradition of reserving that word for this kind of relationship is not enough. Uh, Justice O'Connor, in her concurring opinion in Lawrence versus Texas, said it is enough or it could be enough. She said a state might have a reasonable justification for using a different term to describe these two relationships. Uh, but then that was a, a concurring opinion. It wasn't the opinion of the Supreme Court. And right now, uh, people who follow LGBT legal issues are speculating like crazy. What would happen if this got to the Supreme Court? And how likely is it to get to the Supreme Court? I think it's more likely to get to the Supreme Court if we win in the on bank. And it's much more likely to get to the Supreme Court if we win the sweeping sort of decision we got from Walker rather than the narrow right. decision we got from the panel. And if it goes to the court, it all focuses on Justice Kennedy. Everyone is focusing on Justice Kennedy, who wrote the decisions in Romer and Lawrence. And I read a very interesting uh, piece on this this morning in the National Law Journal, the March 5th issue, by Dean Erwin Chemerinsky of the University of California at Irvine, uh, the new law school there, who is a leading constitutional scholar. And his view is that Justice Kennedy is very sensitive to the trends of history and that a decision upholding Prop 8 would ultimately be seen as like Plessy versus Ferguson, the Supreme Court's separate but equal ruling in mm -hmm. the 1890s or uh, – The way that Bowers eventually yeah, was – Or Bowers was versus Hardwick. He, he, he says that he thinks that if it comes to the crunch, Justice Kennedy will want to be on the side of history which is definitely trending towards same-sex marriage. I mean, Lawrence versus Texas decided in 2003. Since then, how many states have either voted legislatively or through their courts to extend same-sex marriage? It's really a, a, a substantial minority of the country. When you throw in California, yeah. which and, initially and did, yeah. and New York, yeah. and uh, – we, we just got vote in Maryland, signed into law by the governor last month. We got it voted in Washington state, signed into law by the governor. It was voted in New Jersey and vetoed by the governor, and the legislature has till January 2014 to try to override the veto. But meanwhile, there's a, a court case there too, which got expanded this this month by the uh, trial mm -hmm. judge. Well, let me, so, um, you know, I'm going to give you one last point in this case. I know right. you could keep, we could keep talking could keep about it, but what, what do you want to leave, end on in terms of a takeaway here before we move on? Well, in terms of a takeaway here, I would say that this case is really showing now at an appellate level, federal appellate level for the first time, 
that the arguments against same-sex marriage just don't hold the water. I, I like that as an ending. And I hope, okay. I hope that's right. Um, we're going to take a short break. When we return, we'll be discussing a case involving a school's use of web filters that essentially blocked only those sites that expressed positive views of LGBT issues, but was just fine about letting through the sites with anti-gay content. We'll be right back. We're back talking about the case of parents, families, and friends of lesbians and gays, or usually known as PFLAG, versus Camdenton School District. Uh, this is a case out of the U.S. District Court for the Western District of Missouri. And here, um, the court rules that internet filtering software used by a school district control, to control websites accessible by students wound up discriminating uh, based on viewpoint because, um, and this is... It's amazing stuff, right? They blocked websites expressing positive views of LGBT issues, but they allowed students to access websites expressing anti-LGBT views. But we have to, you know, to be fair to the school district. No, let's not be fair to the school district. No, ultimate, ultimately we have, to, we have okay. to realize what was going on here. Okay, so, what was going on? So there is a statute yes. uh, passed by Congress. It's a federal statute, the Children Internet Protection Act. And the idea of this statute is that school districts – that provide internet access for their students are obliged to protect their students from exposure to stuff that might be harmful on the internet. We don't want kids accessing porn on their computers no, in the school library. No, they should do that on their iPhone. <laughs> I mean, you're, I'm joking. Yes. But I, I don't in know. In other words, <laughs> Congress is usually clueless about technology, and they're usually a generation behind. Well, th- I, this is a yeah. side note. But yes. I did when I was reading this, which we'll get into why we like yes. the decision ultimately, but – Kids, I mean, am are I, kids are kids allowed to have iPhones at school? Uh, well, uh, they'll access this stuff at home. I'm just saying the, the age, is, the age of right, being able right. to filter out that. I'm just it, times have changed a little bit, but anyway, that's a side. Right. So, All this okay. concern with internet filters is a little stupid. Okay, and no but, one has smartphones. So, well, in a world where no one has smartphones, well, let's well, continue. How many 15 year olds have smartphones? Uh, I, you know, there's a stat on that, and it's probably a higher proportion than people over the age of yeah. 40. Okay, but so, anyway. so maybe that this case is irrelevant in some sense. <laughs> no, but, keep going. But, but the, the point is that school districts have to buy software to block offensive websites. Fair enough. I mean, this is required by federal law. So these people got something called URL blacklist. Now, mm. doesn't that sound, you know, threatening? Yes. UR, URL blacklist. And what URL blacklist does is its operating principle is they classify websites by subject matter. And the school can decide which classifications will be blocked. Well, and, this, and, so, and so, for example, PFLAG. PFLAG has a website. It talks all about gay rights and homosexuality and gay families and all this sort of stuff. And so the words on the website naturally lead to being classified as a sexuality website. Well, naturally is, is a word. I mean, yeah. that's the way they built that's this. That's the way they built, built the system. system right? which they is, built the system. So it would block any website that had to do with sexuality, which means just about any gay organization that talks about – gay issues on their website is going to be blocked. Uh, on the other hand, they classify as religious websites of religious organizations. And religious organizations, some of them on their websites, have very anti-gay rhetoric. So that gets websites. labeled as religion. That gets labeled as religion, and they, this school district decided they didn't want to block religion websites. So if a student went into the library let's say a closeted student who is desperate to get information about gay organizations yes. or something like that. They go into the library, 
They put the search terms into their browser. They're going to get all the anti-gay stuff from the religious websites, but they're not going to get any of the pro-gay stuff because those websites are blocked as sexuality websites. So uh, some students complained. Uh, they notified various gay organizations that their websites were blocked. And, and this is not an isolate. This is a no, serious this issue. Is a serious this issue is even in the and, and even in regular communications organizations. You know, right. web filters at law firms or yeah. the issue of blocking LGBT content. You know, it's, because it's of certain keywords, is actually a very right. big issue, even beyond just the school district right. example. So, so this decision is important beyond the narrow issues of, mm -hmm. of the parties, but. Uh, eventually, uh, the ACLU was contacted. The ACLU sent a letter to the school district. They said, your software is discriminating based on the content. The viewpoint, the right. The viewpoint, and it's a, it's a First Amendment issue here. And the school district insisted that they had to have this uh, software because they had to comply with the Children Internet Protection Act. And the ACLU said, but there's other software available that other school districts are using that doesn't have this pernicious effect. But the school district wouldn't back down, so they ended up in federal court before Judge Nanette K. Lawfrey, I think that's how it's pronounced, uh, of the Western District of Missouri, and she agreed with the ACLU. She said uh, the evidence showed that, in fact, this software, the URL blacklist, is less effective at blocking offensive websites than other software. And it, it lets more websites that violate the CIPA guidelines through. And uh, therefore, it's, it, it's just not justified uh, as a First Amendment analysis and, and to use the less effective software that has more of a discriminatory effect. Can, can you can we pause on one aspect? I mean, and I've lost my my you know I thought this is the software licensed by like Rick Santorum you know yeah. with its methodology, but um, oh Rick would probably approve of this. Yeah, I mean this is great. It lets in the religious uh, religious anti gay stuff and it weeds out everything else. Awesome. Yeah. But one of the things the school district does here, and it just makes you wonder who's you know at some point there's like a rule of common sense you would think that some of these administrators would adopt, but they argue at least in the litigation context that. One of the reasons why, you know, it's not an issue is, is students can go and request that a site is being unblocked, right. that a site should be unblocked. Yes, yeah, so and who do they have to ask? <laughs> it's like ludicrous. I think it's the principal or the right. school superintendent. Me, I'm trying to get a positive uh, – someone who's struggling yes. with their sexual orientation. Yeah. I, I, I'm interested in getting an, a positive affirming LGBT site unblocked. Can you help me out? I mean – And they can ask the principal. Right. right. Yeah. Uh, well, one, one can doubt the good faith. Well, and, it and seems I think that the court is, is willing to doubt the good faith of a school district that takes that position. Uh, so the court ruled that this violates the First Amendment rights of the organizations that are trying to communicate and, of course, the First Amendment rights of the potential listeners who would access Well, the site. I, I wanted to ask about that last point. I mean, the court seemed, uh, when I read it, very focused on the idea of it violating the rights of the content providers. Right, the because they have the plaintiffs. Right. And you're looking to see whether the plaintiffs' rights are violated. Okay, well, right. the, the, yeah. the, the next point, do the students themselves, by being denied access to certain types of information, have their own, their I, own claim I, I here? I think so. The potential audience has a claim, too. Uh, mm -hmm. But in, in this case, what we're concerned about are the organizations who are claiming that their message is not getting through. 
And these are not organizations that are putting pornographic material on their websites. These are issues-oriented organizations. That are using certain keywords. Right. I, I bet I bet Lambda Legal's website was probably blocked and the mm-hmm. ACLU's website was probably well, blocked. Well, and yeah, I mean one of the sites I think was this case was the Matthew Shepard Foundation, right. which is Matthew a foundation Shepard. devoted to trying to combat uh, hate speech and hate crime. And, and bullying. And bullying and, and, and that, the very type of organization you would want their message to get across to young people, right. at least equally so as the non-affirming messages that the filter was. So stuck. I would characterize this as another clueless school district case. I, I like that. We have a series of clueless school district cases. We get them all the time. It's it, it, The last thing on that is at some point you would think that someone would recognize the litigation risk, although maybe the politics are such that this is, you know, some school administrators, maybe they're going to make a living off well, of having, you know, done this type of it thing. It seems every few months there's another story in the LGBT press or even in the mainstream press about a bunch of students at a high school somewhere asking to have a gay-straight alliance recognized right. and a principal saying no and they kick it up to the school board and the superintendent and they call counsel. And, you know, if they do some research, they'll discover that almost everybody has lost those cases right, right, right. The, the, um, from the point of view of the school district. They've, they've almost always lost. There was only one exception and that was where someone was incautious enough uh, to start a website for a gay student group with links to pornographic websites. Well, actually, there's an answer for this. In those yeah. places, because of all this web filtering and everything else, and they, they don't have access to right. that kind of news. Right. They don't know what's going on everywhere else. All right, I'm being totally facetious. All right, well, we're going to leave it there for that case. We're going to take another break. When we return, we're going to be discussing two cases concerning DOMA. That's the Defense of Marriage Act. One in the context of a married California couple seeking health insurance coverage, and the other in the context of a binational same-sex couple married in Iowa and seeking permanent status for the non-American citizen in the relationship. Stay with us. We are back. So some uh, news about the Defense of Marriage Act, uh, where the courts continue to undermine, I think, its continuing vitality, and maybe the days for DOMA are numbered. Um, DOMA, as most of our listeners probably know, was enacted to... um, to prohibit the federal government from recognizing marriages except for those between a man and a woman. This is Section 3 of DOMA. And uh, had one other part, Section 2, which also says that no state shall be required to recognize the marriage of couples um, who are same-sex, even if it's valid in the jurisdiction where the marriage occurred. Right. And, and Section 2, which is not at stake in these cases, is an attempt by Congress to exercise its alleged powers under the Full Faith and Credit Act, uh, Full Faith and Credit Clause of the United States Constitution. Uh, but that's for another day. Yeah, but just so, to make sure that if one right. jurisdiction, or say seven, allows same-sex marriage, that doesn't or eight affect, or, or eight, nine, nine doesn't effectively mean that the rest will have to follow by recognizing right. it. Right. But anyway, Section Two is for another day. So, first case here we're going to talk about is Galinsky versus the United States Office of Personnel Management. This is out of the Northern District of California. Well, we should be sure to name both defendants. The other defendant is John Berry, who's the director of the Office of Personnel Management. Why, why do you raise that? Because he's one of the highest-ranking openly gay officials of the United States government. So That's why. unfortunate to be on this yes. side of the V in it's, that it, to yeah. be John Berry. It's like being Governor Jerry Brown of California and being the defendant in the Prop 8 There case. you go. When he, when he believes Prop 8 is unconstitutional. And, of course, John Berry believes that DOMA is unconstitutional because his boss – President Obama believes that DOMA is unconstitutional. So what a mess. Yeah, what a mess. So what's going on here is Karen Galinsky married her sweetheart in California when it was legal to do so. She's a staff attorney at the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in San Francisco. Uh, She tried to enroll her wife 
in the Federal Employee Benefits Program, which is administered by the Office of Personnel Management. Uh, and they said no. They said under DOMA, we're not allowed to recognize your marriage. Uh, she filed a grievance. The Ninth Circuit has an internal grievance procedure. Her grievance was decided by Chief Judge Alex Kaczynski, who was appointed to the Ninth Circuit by President Ronald Reagan back in the 1980s, and Judge Kaczynski ruled in her favor. He said he thought he could construe the relevant federal statutes and regulations in such a way as to allow a same-sex spouse to be considered a family member for purposes of the Employee Benefits Program. But the Office of Personnel Management would not back down. They refused to comply with Judge Kaczynski's order. He said, I am ordering you. I'm a federal judge. And they said, well, no, in this role, you're not a federal judge. You're just an arbitrator on an internal dispute process, and that doesn't overrule DOMA. And an attempt was made to directly appeal that uh, before Judge Jeffrey Wright of the U.S. District Court in San Francisco, and he said, well, I don't really have jurisdiction to rule on these internal grievances, so you better go back and file a new lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of DOMA. And that's what he ruled on on February 22nd. Uh, government uh, filed a motion to dismiss, a uh, motion for summary judgment, actually, and motion to dismiss, and... Uh, Despite the, the fact that, I mean, we should point out again that, that the, the Obama administration takes the position that DOMA is unconstitutional. They nonetheless will continue to... They will continue to appear as yeah, a right. defendant. But the so-called bipartisan legal advisory Black. group Black. Black. of the House of Representatives, known as BLAG... <laughs> Isn't that uh, what John Stewart says? Yes. BLAG. BLAG, right. <laughs> so uh, BLAG hired Paul Clement, the former Solicitor oh, General from the, from, the Bush uh, yes, from the Bush administration, and Paul Clement uh, appeared in this case, or his associate appeared in this case, to move the court to dismiss the case and to grant summary judgment for the government. And in an important decision issued on February 22nd, Judge Wright held that Section 3 of DOMA is unconstitutional. Now, this is not a novel ruling anymore because for the past several months, federal district judges around the country and U.S. bankruptcy judges have been ruling that Section 3 of DOMA is unconstitutional. And not only that it's unconstitutional, but, I mean, you, you, you point this out, mm -hmm. that it fails, it fails even rational okay. basis. But uh, Judge, Judge Wright points out something else that's very interesting in this opinion. Uh, the one of the arguments that the government makes is that in the Ninth Circuit, it must be a rational basis case because way back in the early 1990s, the Ninth Circuit ruled that sexual orientation discrimination claims are subject only to rational basis review because of Bowers versus Hardwick, the Supreme Court's 1986 decision upholding the Georgia sodomy law. They said if sodomy between homosexuals can be criminalized, how can they be entitled to heightened scrutiny under the Equal Protection Clause? That was the argument. Well, in 2003, in Lawrence versus Texas, the Supreme Court overruled Bowers versus Hardwick, and it not only said that Bowers versus Hardwick uh, is overruled, it also said it was wrong when it was decided, which means that the Ninth Circuit precedent that relied on it was also wrong when it was decided which means that the question of what the standard of review for sexual orientation discrimination claims should be in the Ninth Circuit is an open question, says Judge Wright, and he thinks it should be heightened scrutiny. But just in case the Ninth Circuit doesn't agree with him, he also finds that under the rational basis test, Section 3 falls. So we have another nail in the 
Growing coffin. That actually sounds right. Yeah, I mean, it's it a very if right. Bowers v. Hardwick is overruled. Yeah. I mean, and 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 of course the uh, Blag immediately filed an appeal to the Ninth Circuit, which is causing all kinds of chatter at the Ninth Circuit about conflicts of interest. Oh, Judge Kaczynski. Yeah, this is interesting. Judge Kaczynski has recused himself. He says they they assign these panels by lottery, uh, by some kind of random lottery. He said. I shouldn't be considered for the three-judge panel because Judge Wright was reviewing, really, my decision. And and in the course of his opinion, Judge Wright said, no, Judge Kaczynski, that was a bit of a stretch to say you can interpret these federal statutes to allow uh, for the benefits here. Uh, so he found that implausible. And he said, no, the issue here is whether Section 3 of DOMA is constitutional. So it would sort of be impolitic for Judge Kaczynski to sit on this appeal. But – Actually, Ms. Galinsky has been a staff attorney at the Ninth Circuit for 20 years. I mean, these are her employers, these judges. And the Ninth Circuit has a sexual orientation non-discrimination policy. So there's been some chatter in the legal press out in San Francisco about whether the whole Ninth Circuit has should it, be recused. Has that ever happened? Has an entire whole, circuit ever recused Well, there have, been, there have been times when a court had to consider issues involving improprieties committed by members of the, of the, of the bench. And so sometimes a case has been deferred to a different circuit to decide. I mean, this is a slightly – I mean, no, this is – This is a, different. To decide almost a substantive right. matter of law and, that and, – And in the discussion in uh, the Recorder, which is a legal newspaper in, in San Francisco, uh, they pointed out that Ms. Galinsky's role over mo- most of the past 11 or 12 years has been to train staff attorneys. And so she has not had a lot of direct contact with most of the judges in the circuit. So they should be able to put together a three-judge panel of people who don't really have a personal relationship with her. Uh, so the idea of uh, all of them recusing themselves and sending it over to the Eighth Circuit or the Tenth Circuit, probably not going to happen. But it's, it's sort of interesting to talk about. Uh, the other case – Yes, you, you beat me to, to the, the segue. Yeah, let's go to that. Let's segue because uh, we're, we're – Yeah, we're running, running out the clock here. So this is, this is a, a – Again, a married same-sex couple. Uh, this is Revelis. Is it Revelis versus Napolitano? Demos, I think it's Revelis. Revelis. Maybe Revelis. I apologize. Um, and this is uh, – the plaintiffs are two gentlemen who are Chicago residents. Um, one of them is a, uh, is, a, is a citizen of the Netherlands. Um, another has entered the country through a visa waiver program. And Actually, one is a citizen of the United States. Right. Well, is it – And the other and, is a citizen of the Netherlands. Oh, I'm sorry. It's I've a binational right. couple. Binational couple, and I've, I've yes. made them both into American citizens. Yes. Uh, We're so, not going to be able to edit that out. So, so Demos Revelis or Revelis is a citizen of the United States, and Marcel Maz, who is his husband, is uh, a citizen of the Netherlands. Is a citizen of the Netherlands. Yes. Uh, Maz entered legally under a visa waiver program, came to the United States. Matt Revelis, they began dating, they mm. began living together mm. in 2002, and when marriage became available in Iowa, Iowa, they went to Iowa, as many people from Illinois do because it's nearby, and they got married. And then uh, Mr. Revelis immediately filed a petition uh, with the Immigration Service for spousal status for his husband. And this is uh, available for uh, binational couples. And it means they'll get permanent residency in the United States. They'll get a green card. They can work legally, and eventually they can apply for citizenship. Uh, so it's a very important right under the immigration laws. And they filed the uh, petition, but they knew going in that it couldn't be granted because of DOMA and because the Obama administration says, although we acknowledge DOMA is unconstitutional, 
we have to continue enforcing it. We've taken our oaths of office. We have to enforce federal laws until Congress repeals it or the courts definitively strike it down. On that point, though, because I think there's a fair amount of confusion out there about some changes that for the better with respect to To immigration. immigration, So we should explain that. Yeah, I think it's worth – because I I hear a lot of people saying, oh, the changes mean we can now get married and stay. Uh, What what the changes mean is that right now if you get before the right regional uh, administrator of of, uh, the Homeland Security Department, they will exercise their prosecutorial prosecutorial discretion not to deport you. If you're already facing if you're in some a, if you're, if you're facing facing removal proceedings. Removal proceedings. Right. So, so they may exercise discretion to let you stay in the country, but you're in a sort of suspended animation status. You don't have permanent residency. You don't have a green card. Right. But we're talking about marriage. And this couple decided, why wait? Why wait to be turned down and have to appeal it within the bureaucracy of the Homeland Security Department and up to the Board of Immigration Appeals because we can't make a constitutional argument about DOMA in the administrative process. These administrative hearing officers and administrative boards don't don't have authority to declare anything unconstitutional. Only when you get to a court can you make that argument. So why don't we just short-circuit it and file a lawsuit in a federal district court and get a declaration? that DOMA Section 3 is unconstitutional as applied to the spousal status under immigration law. And so these guys went into court with a private law firm. This isn't a public interest uh, organization. They're uh, represented by a pair, a bunch of Chicago lawyers, Aaron Cobb, Heather Benno, and Justin Burton of the firm of Kreiselman Burton and Associates in Chicago. They went into court, and they said uh, to... uh, Judge Harry D. Leinenweber of the Northern District of Illinois Eastern Division. They said, Judge Leinenweber. <laughs> I'm sorry. Don't why I, is that funny? I don't know. <laughs> You're smiling there. <laughs> well, because it's sort of a rather extended name. But, you know, I've been working on pronouncing it so I wouldn't butcher it, you know, on the podcast. And I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. Please excuse me, Judge, if I'm not. But uh, they said, we want a declaration that Doma is unconstitutional as applied to our case. And the U.S. Attorney's Office filed a motion to dismiss on two grounds. They said these people don't have standing to raise this issue because they haven't been turned down yet. And secondly, because they haven't been turned down yet, the matter is not ripe Mm -hmm. for judicial consideration. And in this decision issued back in January, but it just came to light recently, uh, Judge Weber said he thinks there's a real dispute here because they're not asking the court to grant spousal status to Mr. Moss. They're asking the court to order the Homeland Security Department to treat them the same as any other married couple. That's what they're – and their injury, which is already there. They're they're being denied a benefit that would be available to any other married married couple. couple. Or at least a different sex married couple. Right, right, right. I mean the uh, – uh, U.S. Attorney's Office, which is defending the case locally there, made the argument that there are many different grounds for turning down a petition for spousal status, and it could be that Mr. Moss is not qualified on some other ground. Uh, and the court said, well, that's sort of irrelevant at this point. At this point, the issue is whether they're going to get equal consideration. And the judge didn't tip his hand onto the ultimate merits of the case, but the way the opinion is written, it seems clear that this is ultimately going to be another defeat for Section 3 of DOMA. And this is a new battlefront because so far the cases have been in New England, in New York, in California. Now we've got a case in Chicago. 
and these cases are just mounting up. At some point, one would hope that Congress would wake up and say, maybe it's time to repeal DOMA. That's cute. That's, that's cute. cute. That's good as long stuff. As, as long as the Republicans run yeah, the House, that, yeah, that, forget that's, about that's, that. That's a, that's a sweet but, thought. But, right. uh, but at the, uh, the other thing to add on DOMA is that the First Circuit, where the cases that were decided in the Federal District Court in Boston uh, are now pending on appeal, the First Circuit has set oral argument. It's going to happen early in April. And so we may have a decision from a court of appeals uh, from the First Circuit before we get a decision from the Ninth Circuit, although, uh, uh, as I said, the Galinsky case has been appealed. So we're going to be in two circuit courts. Uh, I don't know whether the Justice Department is going to uh, appeal this ruling in the Ravellis case or not, so we might also be before the Seventh Circuit. <laughs> Who knows? It's all around the country. Uh, we're going to be attacking DOMA on many fronts. That's great. We're going to uh, leave it there for that. We're going to take a short break, conclude with our Of Note segment. During uh, that segment, we mentioned some notable, infuriating, or hilarious developments in the world of LGBT legal news. We're back to finish the podcast with our Of Note segment. Art, this is the point where I ask you what you have of note that you haven't said already. Okay. And and this is actually something that's going to be in the next issue of Law Notes, but it, it just, just happened. And I, I can't can't resist. When California's administrative office of the courts added a question about sexual orientation to the annual survey it conducts of California judiciary, it inspired a little civil disobedience from some of the judges. Forty <laughs> percent of the judges refused to answer the question about their sexual orientation or gender identity, leaving it a mystery. <laughs> So there may be all these closet cases on the California judiciary who don't want to answer the question. According to a table released summarizing the results, as of December 31st, 2011, out of 1,678 California state judges, 19 self-identified as lesbian, 17 as gay, and one as transgender. What, what does that work out to? 2.16%. That seems California low. judges. Seems it low. seems low. Seems it low. seems low. Uh, self-identify as LGBT, 969, 57.7% of the judges identify as heterosexual, and the rest are a mysterious group <laughs> who will not disclose their sexuality to the core administrators, even though they're not going to publish this information by name. It's just published in tables of statistics, but they don't want to be labeled. Well, you know, yeah. I guess that's their right. Don't no, some people don't want yeah. people to know. And, they don't want to be. La- they don't want to carry that. And the addition of sexual orientation and gender identity to the questionnaire was mandated by a California statute, which is concerned with diversity on the bench. Well, how are they supposed to carry out the aims of the statute if they can't even know? Even one of the Supreme Court justices wouldn't answer. That's shocking. The other six said they were straight. That's to terrible. nobody's surprise. Well, one of them is holding out, <laughs> and we don't know which one. <laughs> this is the mystery. All right. Mine is um, – my have no concerns yet another example of a counselor, someone who's providing counseling to people in need, uh, has cited religious objections in uh, refusing to counsel a um, – a, in this case, it was a, uh, a woman who is in a long-term committed relationship uh, with, with her wife and raising a kid and had come to this counselor with the need for some advice. And this person said her, her – told the client, told the visitor directly, my personal values do not allow me to counsel you. In this case, she was a, a, um, a very religious person who said that it was against her religion uh, to, to provide such uh, counseling. 
Um, and the court, though, here, this was a case uh, called Walden v. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Uh, it's also uh, out of the 11th Circuit. Um, and the court said, well, you know, you may have First Amendment rights to, to seek a referral when you don't want to do certain counseling. But the manner in which you did it, I thought this was pretty right. smart, telling the client that your personal values, when, the, when they reacted, when the employer reacted by saying you can't do that anymore and pulled her off the contract – uh, for doing the counseling, the court said, you know, it, it's okay for uh, for you to be disciplined and removed for telling a client that your personal values prevent you from from counseling, because it might be a good idea not to tell someone who's seeking, you know, right? Because to, because the client in that case said, well, I was sort of told that my relationship is immoral. That's yeah, what she was telling. And she she went and the the client said, went to a supervisor and said, this person is homophobic. Right. Um, and this is this is the third case, at least. And I, I on a previous podcast, I said I'm, this is a trend. This is an epidemic. Yeah. This is now the third case in the last three months covered in law notes, in which a a, a counselor basically withdrew from counseling uh, in all sorts of different ways. Some some better than others uh, because of their religious beliefs. So, I guess um, I, I hope for most of us, yes. if we go to see a counselor, they won't. They won't have anti-gay bias that's going to prevent them from helping us. One can only hope, Brad. You would think that would be good enough. Okay. That's, um, that's all the time we have today. Thank you for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting www.le-gal.org. To read back issues of the publication, visit the Justice Action Center of New York Law School. And this and future podcasts, as always, can be found online in the iTunes store or at legal.podbean.com. Your comments and questions are also welcome at info at le-gal.org. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm.